0: Well, we are teaching through the book of 1 Corinthians here on Sunday morning with this theme of everyday discipleship. And last week, we began a mini-series within this series, and we're calling it The Church and the Spirit. Now, I think it's really good to be reminded each time that we gather to hear teachings out of 1 Corinthians, just something about the background of this letter, And I'll begin by saying, this is a letter letter written by Paul to a local church that lived in the midst of the Roman Empire. And so already we can understand that this is not a whole lot different than this local church. There are ways in which this church in Corinth, evidences of God's spirit, of God's life, of his presence at work in them, transformation, sanctification, ways in which Jesus was being put on display through their lives and yet there were also clear indications of the deep roots that sin and their formal lifestyle still had in their lives and now being manifested in the church so it had been reported to Paul by Chloe's household that all this stuff is going on that there are sexual issues that there are spiritual social issues going on in the church And I know, sometimes reading Paul's letters, it feels like Paul just has issue after issue after issue. But the key issue that Paul really is getting at again and again and again is that the Corinthians had failed to recognize the real life implications of Jesus Christ and him crucified, of understanding the type of king that Jesus was and Jesus is. He's not like Caesar. They had failed to understand the real-life implications of God's kingdom being at work among them. It's not like the Roman Empire. It is vastly different. And so Paul writes to them to bring them back into alignment with the way of Jesus and the way of the kingdom of God. Now, we don't have the same issues that Corinth had, but we have issues Absolutely, we have issues. And that's true of this church, and that's true also of the church globally, nationally. And I think Leslie Newbegin, he has just such wise insight when he says this. The choice for the church in every age will always be, will our identity be shaped by scripture or by culture, by the biblical story or the cultural story? I think that is a heart-searching question that we have to ask ourselves again and again and again. What story, what grand narrative are we being shaped by? Whose image are we being made into? Now, in chapter 11, verse 2, Paul turned his attention to the worship gatherings of the Corinthian church. And he's going to address how these gatherings are to work all the way through chapter 14. But in uh, chapter 12, this is an exposition of the work of the Spirit in the life of the church. And Paul summarizes an astonishing variety of manifestations of the Spirit and of his work in the life of the church. Now, the common teaching is that Paul is teaching about spiritual gifts, which are supernatural endowments of the Holy Spirit given to believers at or after conversion, to fulfill the mission of the church. But really, that's kind of a narrow view of of what's going on here. It doesn't really come close to the rich diversity of the Spirit's work that Paul begins to unpack. That could be through lifelong abilities, newly given abilities. Like, you know, it's not like, well, the Spirit gave you a gift, and then that's it till kingdom come. Like, we should always be open and expectant to how the spirit of God wants to work and what new things he wants to do in our lives. So these could be lifelong abilities, newly given abilities, or momentary manifestations. I'm really excited in the next couple of weeks to talk about this, but Paul specifically in chapter 12 is focusing on the way that the spirit actually might interrupt our gathering and might have these explosive ways in which he manifests himself and his presence in the midst of God's people. Now, the common translation of verse 1 is that Paul is talking about spiritual gifts or gifts of the Spirit. But this is actually misleading because the word gifts is not in the original Greek of this verse. Paul speaks instead of spirituals, which is a focus on the things of the Spirit. And so I'd like you just to kind of suspend your judgments for a moment and hear this. 1 Corinthians 12 though we've been taught that it's just about just about spiritual gifts is actually really about how the spirit moves forward the mission of Jesus through the followers of Jesus. How God is gifted his church in many different ways, many different abilities, how God is present in his church to pour his life and love into us that we might grow into what God has purchased us to be, but then we might overflow out into the world the great love and goodness of God. You see how the Spirit moves forward then, the mission of Jesus through the followers of Jesus. You'll notice, though, that Paul mentions That as he just even begins to talk about spirituals or things of the Spirit, there's a lot of confusion around it. Confusion around what the Spirit might prompt someone to speak out. Well, the confusion is because the Corinthians, as Paul mentions, have brought their own pagan backgrounds of worship into the Christian worship gathering. Now, Paul wants them to understand that the work of the Spirit and the purpose of the Spirit, though there might be parts of the worship gathering that might be similar to the pagan worship that they came out of, that the person, work, and purposes of the Spirit are vastly different. The purpose and work of the Spirit is love, which Paul will unpack in chapter 13. Love from God pouring through us into the lives of others. And as I said, then in, out into the life of the world. But we'll talk more about that in the weeks to come. Now, there was a lot of confusion surrounding the work of the Spirit. And I mean, couldn't we all raise our hands and be like, ditto? Yeah, that's me. Like, that's many of the churches I've been in. That's my whole Christian life. I am confused about the person and work of the Holy Spirit. Well, I think Eugene Peterson's interpretation from the message was really clear and seeing Paul's point here, so I just want to read it quickly. He says, what I want to talk about now is the various ways God's Spirit gets worked into our lives. This is complex and often misunderstood. Can I get an amen? Amen. But I want you to be informed and knowledgeable. Remember how, when you didn't know God, You were led from one phony God to another, never knowing what you were doing, just doing it because everybody else did it? Well, it's different in this life. God wants to use our intelligence to seek to understand as well as we can. For instance, by using your head, you know perfectly well that the Spirit of God would never prompt anyone to say, Jesus, be damned. Nor would anyone be inclined to say, Jesus is master. Jesus is Lord and king without the insight of the Holy Spirit. So listen to what Peterson, the way that he interprets and paraphrases this. Corinthians, I want you to know that life in the spirit, the work of the spirit in our lives is all about Jesus being king. It's all about him being master and Lord. So with all the confusion in Corinth, and the double confusion in our own lives and our own experiences about the spirit, I think a really great place to start in clearing up confusion about the spirit is in the life of Jesus. Now, I want to talk to you this morning, before we get into the rest of 1 Corinthians 12, I want to talk to you about spirit-filled Jesus. Now I imagine maybe that phrase is unfamiliar to you. You don't hear that often. Oh, spirit-filled Jesus. Now we hear Jesus Christ, the Son of God, savior. We hear, you know, Jesus the teacher. We hear many different kind of titles, you know, or associations connected with Jesus, but spirit-filled Jesus is what I want to talk about this morning. In John's Gospel chapter 3 verse 34, John the baptizer is speaking about how Jesus is now on the scene and it's time for him to pass the torch to Jesus. Remember, this is that famous passage. He must increase, I must decrease. And in the culmination of this passage, he's talk, John is talking about Jesus and he makes this incredible statement. He says, for the one who God has sent speaks the word of God. And listen, for God gives him the spirit without limit. In other words, Jesus was spirit filled without limit, without borders. And we need to understand that this is unprecedented in the biblical story. Never before have we heard of this. We've heard of the Spirit of God rushing upon and clothing Gideon or rushing upon Saul. We've heard about David being anointed with the Holy Spirit. We've even heard about double portions of Elijah's spirit and power. But all of that pales in comparison to what we are being told here by John the baptizer, that this is the one who will possess the Spirit without any measure or limit. The spirit of God will be on the scene like never before in the history of the world. And as you read through the gospels, you see that's exactly what happens. The Holy Spirit is all over the life of Jesus. And this is quite incredible because at this point in the history of Israel, there has been 400 years of silence. That means no prophets and no prophecy. That means no miracles, no divine revelation no fillings of the Spirit, at least that we know of. Silence. And then it is as if the pages of the gospel open up and there is this explosion of the Spirit, similar to what we see in the creation account. The Spirit of the Of the the living God hovering over the face of the waters, ready to act and work and move. So first we have, in the story of Jesus, Mary, who is a young virgin from Nazareth. And she is told by the angel Gabriel that she's going to give birth to God's anointed Savior. And when she asks how that could possibly be because she's a virgin, the angel replies, the Holy Spirit. Whoa, 400 years, we haven't heard about this, The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And that is just the beginning because from here on out, the Holy Spirit is filling all sorts of people and moving people to speak these beautiful prophetic words from God. First, we have Elizabeth. She's filled with the Holy Spirit. She's so filled that even her baby gets filled, okay? Then we've got Zachariah, who's filled with the Spirit of God, who has this canticle about John and how he will be used to prepare the way of the Lord. That the people that set in darkness upon them, a light is dawned. Uh, it's incredible. Go read it. Luke 1, 67. Simeon then is led by the spirit into the temple to see baby Jesus and again to speak this canticle, this prophetic word over baby Jesus. And then of course we come to Jesus himself. His conception and birth is the work of the Holy Spirit, we're told, by the gospel writers. But then, at 30 years of age, he goes out to the Jordan River to be baptized by John. And instead of your normal run-of-the-mill baptism, right, like, you're a sinner, confess your sin, go into the water, come back out, what happens? We're told, first, that the heavens are torn open. A prayer that Isaiah prayed. Oh, Lord, that you would tear open the heavens and that you would come down. The heavens are torn open. The Spirit of God rushes down and comes upon Jesus. And this voice from heaven speaks, this is my one and only Son. I am very pleased with Him. And we're told right from there, Luke chapter 4, and Jesus full of the Holy Spirit returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. He's not sustained by food. He's not sustained by the will of his own, or excuse me, the power of his own will. But under the power of the Holy Spirit, he overcomes the devil. He outwits him in every way. And then we're told that he returns to Galilee. In the power of the Spirit. And then one of my favorite sections in all of the Gospels. Jesus walks into his hometown. It's a Saturday. Walks into the synagogue and he's handed the scroll of Isaiah. Like, oh, wow, what's going to happen here? He finds a place where it's written. And he says this. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and the recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are pressed to proclaim that this is the year, the year of the Lord's favor, the time that everyone has waited for. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down, and everyone is looking at him, it says. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Wow. This is it. The time like no other. The Spirit of God is present and on the move in the person of Jesus Christ. We're also told that Jesus rejoiced greatly in the Holy Spirit, filled with the joy of the Spirit that he performed his ministry in the power of the Spirit. Performed his ministry in the power of the Spirit. What is that ministry? Feeding and filling. Healing and comforting. Restoring all that sin has broken and ravaged. We're told by the writer of Hebrews that Jesus offered himself to God in his sacrificial death by the Spirit. And finally, Paul in Romans 8 and Peter in his epistle tells us that Jesus was resurrected to life by the Spirit of God. Now, I don't want us to miss what the New Testament is trying to tell us. And that is that Jesus' life is the Spirit-filled life par excellence So here it is. If you want to know what the Spirit of God looks like, what the Spirit of God does in the life of a person, look at Jesus. He is the Spirit-filled human. Whoa, 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 whoa. Spirit-filled human? I think sometimes we dismiss Jesus, and maybe even me just saying that Jesus is a Spirit-filled human kind of... Give some of you like a little jolt and you're like, "Whoa, whoa, wait, okay, are we getting into some heresy here? So in talking about Jesus, I think what we often do is we give Jesus kind of this excuse. Oh, Jesus does all this. Jesus is tempted, but you know, without sin and he can do all these miraculous things and he can give his life. He can turn the other cheek. He can do it all because he's God incarnate because he's the second person of the triune Godhead. So being spirit-filled is just kind of a bonus, an add-on, or an appendices that the scripture's just kind of letting us know. Like this, like, not only can he walk on water, folks, but he is also spirit-filled. And it's just like, uh, who cares? Like, who cares that he's spirit-filled? But I believe that this thinking is incorrect. See, Paul tells us in Philippians 2, verses five through 11, that when the Son of God came into this world as a human, he emptied himself. And I wonder if we ever ask the question, of what? Of what did the eternal Son of God empty of himself? Simon Ponsambi, in his book, God inside out, I think he has some incredible insight into this. He says, the pre-existent divine son of God of his own volition emptied himself. And this Greek word means to strip, empty, deprive, or render to no effect, inoperable, and took to himself the form of a servant. His divinity was not lost, but it also was not exercised. Jesus took upon himself the form of fallen human nature, mortal and corruptible, and lived, directed, and dependent on the Spirit. The Word became flesh, he says, and exercised power through the Spirit. Wow, what a thought. And not on his own the son's self-emptying means that Jesus was compelled to rely on the spirit the son decided not to make use of divine attributes independently but experience what it would mean to be truly human what does it look like for a human being to be filled with the Holy Spirit, to be under the control of the Spirit, to have power of the Holy Spirit working through them? It looks an awful lot like Jesus. That is the answer. Well, what about all the amazing miracles that Jesus performed? Isn't that Jesus showing that he's God? And then sometimes we're like, well, okay, sometimes like Jesus is like, I'm human, I'm God, I'm God, I'm human, I'm human, God, I'm God, I'm human, right? We like, which one? Which circle is he jumping into it? In which moments, right? So, isn't all these miraculous deeds, these signs, these wonders, Jesus showing that he's God? Maybe. Certainly, it is Jesus showing that he is the one and same God of Israel in the sense that all his works line up with Yahweh's works and character seen in the biblical witness. But I believe scripture supports that the power behind the miracles comes from Jesus being the true and perfect human who is filled with the spirit of God rather than deriving from his divine power. Think about what Adam and Eve were intended to be. Human beings filled with the spirit of God ruling over God's creation. See, we're told by Paul, that Jesus is the second Adam. He's everything that Adam was not. He's everything that Adam should have been. And there's this really wild passage in Hebrews 2, where the writer of Hebrews brings up Psalm 8. Bible Church, you know Psalm 8? O Lord, our Lord, How majestic is your name in all the earth. When I think about the heavens, when I think about the celestial beings and lights, all these things, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you take care of him? You have crowned him with glory and honor and majesty. You have set him over all the works of your hands, but you have made him for this time a little lower than the angels. I think I'm getting the order of that mixed up, but you you understand what I'm saying. The writer of Hebrews says, We do not see this at this time, but what do we see? We see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels and crowned with glory and honor. Could it be that the power to direct a multitude of fish into a net comes from Jesus being the true human, ruling over God's creation? Could it be that the restorative power at work in Jesus, is actually because he is what humanity was intended to be and what humanity will be. Please don't, don't misunderstand. Please don't mishear me. I absolutely affirm the full divinity of Jesus. I just think sometimes the church forgets that Jesus was fully human as well. I think we often overemphasize the divinity of Jesus to the point where he isn't human at all. But this is the exact opposite of what the gospels are telling us. He gets it. He knows your difficulty. He has walked your path. And he didn't just, you know, take a ball. He didn't just like, you know, oh, you know, I'm gonna kind of pass on this one. This difficult human thing that you know, sinful people have to go through, well, I'm going to do the God thing in this scenario. No. He fully subjects himself to the human experience and operates under the power of the Holy Spirit. He was subject to it all. Scripture shows us tired, thirsty, hungry, sad, angry, tempted, and tried. Even subject to suffering and death. And we are told this was in order to be our substitute, our great high priest, but also in order to be our example of what it looks like to live in the Spirit and by the Spirit. You want to know what God wants for your life as just a human being? It looks a lot like Jesus. You want to know what it means to be a follower of God? To be on the mission of God? It looks a lot like Jesus. Jesus is the true, the truest human who ever lived. The spirit-filled human See, I believe it is Jesus as the Spirit-filled human that works signs and wonders, that speaks with an authority like no other living person. It is Jesus by the power of the Spirit that he overcomes the devil and the temptations in the wilderness, fulfills the prophetic visions of the prophets of the restorative healing power and justice of God. And finally, it is through the power of the Holy Spirit that Jesus established the kingdom of God through his death and his resurrection. Everything that Jesus does in his life and ministry is in the Spirit and by the Spirit. So I hope that this might clear up a little bit of confusion about who the Spirit is and what the Spirit does in our lives, and then help us build a foundation for what the Spirit does in the church. See, this has been really helpful to me in my own life because mainly of two reasons. I think number one for comfort. See, I, I want more of the Holy Spirit. And there were many years in my life where I was really conflicted because all that glitters is not gold, as they say, right? And I would see things that were done in the name of the Spirit. I would think, gosh, I, I, Lord, I want, I want more of your Spirit. I want you to have more of me, but I do not want that, right? I just don't. I just like not in my I just feel that it's insincere, it would be insincere for me to engage in that type of thing. And so it's comforting to me because though I do believe Jesus was not normal by any means, I mean, read the gospels, he's not normal. He's also not weird, okay? Not normal, not weird. Jesus didn't go around barking, he didn't walk up to people and pray in tongues over them. He didn't prophesy and speak words that were unrelated and disconnected from people's needs. And I'm not making fun. I promise. I'm really not. But I want to point out that everything that Jesus does, I almost, I spilled my water last service and I almost just did it again. So hold on. Okay. What I want to point out is that everything that Jesus does is relational and purposeful. Like when Jesus meets the woman at the well, he's not speaking in an unknown language to her, hoping that there will be some interpretation. He doesn't give her a prophetic word that means nothing for her actual boots-on-the-ground life. Everything he does is relational and purposeful. Everything he does is intentional and powerful. And I bring this up because the fact that has grounded me many times because evangelical Christianity, it goes through these spiritual trends. When I was younger, there was this thing, you might remember, it was called the Toronto Blessing. And there were all these things that were happening in the name and the power of the Holy Spirit. More recently, there's this emphasis on dream interpretation, which I'm fine with dream interpretation. But I do not believe every dream is from God and every dream has an interpretation. Trust me, I've got some really weird dreams. These don't mean anything. That's okay. Sorry, side note. Emphasis on dream interpretation. Emphasis on prophesying over non-Christians. Does God have words for people who are not his people? Absolutely. Does God have a prophetic word for every non-Christian? Not in the way that people are practicing it. Going on. Grave soaking. So this is becoming popular, and this is where people go around and lay on the graves of Christian leaders and try to soak up their anointing. And then, and I'm not I'm not making fun of these people. Please understand me. There's also another um, Christian leader who was getting some notoriety because he practiced punching demons out of people. And I'm pretty sure he's got a few lawsuits that are waiting for him, even at this moment. How do we know what is the genuine work of the Spirit and what is emotionalism and hype? How do we know what is simply just personality-driven? Like, that's just kind of how God has wired you. But that doesn't have to be true for me. And it seems to me that this is where Jesus and the scripture anchor us. We never see Jesus or the apostles doing anything weird. It's never shown in the gospels, modeled or taught to soak the grave of a spiritual leader, to punch a demon out of someone, to bark or make noises like an animal. And in fact, The moving of the Holy Spirit is always in concert with bringing glory to God, drawing people to the revelation of God's goodness and his rescue available to us, his forgiveness of sin available to us in Jesus, and then helping, serving, healing, comforting, and encouraging and exhorting others. This is how the Spirit is described in the pages of Scripture. And this is the Spirit that God has given to us. This is the Spirit that we want to be pursuing. This is the Spirit that we want to be surrendered and open to. So when we say we want a Spirit-filled church, when we say, Holy Spirit, come, when we say, Lord, By your spirit, give us prophetic words. Words of encouragement, words of comfort. This is what we're talking about. Continue the ministry of the life and works of Jesus here in our midst. And then do that through us out into the world. That's what we're talking about. That's what scripture is talking about. So that's the first way that looking at the life of Jesus has grounded me. The second way is it helps me to see the absolute necessity of the spirit in the life of the follower of Jesus. As I mentioned, Jesus has the spirit without measure. It remains on him, anointing him for his life and ministry. And John tells us something fascinating that none of the other gospel writers tell us. The other gospel writers there at the cross were told that Jesus releases his spirit, or Jesus gives up the ghost, some translations say, but John specifically records that when Jesus breathes his last, he gives up the spirit, the pneuma, the same term that John has been using all throughout his gospel. So there on the cross, when Jesus released his soul, it says that he gave up, released the Holy Spirit. And then the next time we see Jesus, interacting with his disciples, do you remember what he says? He says, peace to you, for as the Father has sent me, now I am sending you. And he said this, and he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. This is incredible. See, that that same power and anointing, that fullness that Jesus had, he released it so that it might fall on you, that it might fall on me that we might be his spirit-filled people. This is absolutely necessary for the life of the follower of Jesus. You see, the main one of the main purposes in Jesus coming to earth was to be our example of a life lived in the spirit and by the spirit and then to give up that spirit that we might be his spirit-filled people. Now, the primary work and objective of the Holy Spirit, looking at the Gospels, looking at the epistles, is to form the Christian in the life of God, the way God thinks the way God feels and acts. You guys have heard me talk about this before, but the language that is used, especially by Paul, is that you and I are to practice the things of the Spirit in such a way to give ourselves over to the Spirit again and again and again so that it becomes second nature, so that it becomes a part of our very being, our very fiber, so that day after day after day, we're being formed, we're being transformed, our soul's image is being stamped and marked by the person of Jesus, being more made more and more and more in His image. This is the work that the Holy Spirit does in the life of the believer. And then yes, there is power, there is an anointing, there is gifting, there are manifestations. And we see this in the life of Jesus, right? We see the fruit of the Spirit in his life. We see the character of God in his life, but we also see the power of God in his life. God has the same for us. Sometimes we see people who are all about the manifestations of the Spirit, but they lack character. Like, how could you possibly make that decision? How could you possibly do that thing that is so out of line with the way of Jesus, and yet you have a prophetic word? And yet you have a tongue and an interpretation? And I'm like... How? Does this happened? And I, don't, I still don't understand. But a spirit filled life is both form and fire. Formation around the way of Jesus, practicing his way of life, becoming more and more like and made in his image, and the power of the Spirit. Gifting, anointing, healing. All of these, whatever the Spirit desires to do in us. And through us, the Holy Spirit gives us the provision of divine power to execute the Christian way of life and to seek and build the kingdom of God in the places he has called us. And I'm really excited in the next weeks to talk more about how God has called you and how he has gifted you and how he wants to gift you more and how God desires to show up and manifest himself as we gather in his name, under his word. But it is through the Holy Spirit that we assimilate our great salvation. The the Spirit is absolutely essential in the life of the follower of Jesus. Now, this begs the question then, like, okay, if that's what spirit-filled looks like, and if I'm supposed to have the Spirit, do I have the Spirit, right? It's like any time you do this teaching or a teaching like this, you teach about salvation, the question is always like, oh, no, am I actually saved, right? And then everybody's questioning So do I have the Holy Spirit, as you just described it, Char? Am I really a Christian? Well, let me just say this. According to the Bible, every person who has committed their life to Jesus Christ, who puts their faith and trust in him, says, Jesus, your king, your master, what you say goes. I give you my allegiance. I give you the whole of myself. Whoever does that says the Holy Spirit takes up residence in our hearts. God pours the spirit of his son into our hearts. The love of God fills up our hearts and we cry out in return, Abba. There is this relational, familial connection with God upon receiving the Holy Spirit. We are children of God and God is Father. That's called regeneration. We become a part of the family of God. We become a new creation. But often our experience as we begin to live out the Christian life, as we seek to follow Jesus, to grow out of our old habits and way of speaking, thinking, and acting, along the way, we stumble, we fall, we lose that fervor and that passion, that zeal and that clarity about who we are and what we're supposed to be doing. And I think the common experience of many Christians is that we don't feel that we have the spirit. We don't sense his presence or work in our lives. Now, there could be many reasons for that and I wanna talk about that. Sometimes that could just be a season that you're going through. And so I don't wanna give you like this, like doubt that you're doing the wrong thing. If you're seeking the Lord, if you're leaning into that and asking these questions, like God, where is your spirit? Where is your presence at work in my life? I want more, then you're in a good place, keep going. Keep going. But often, we don't feel, we don't sense the presence of the Spirit in our lives. And so I think a good question to ask is, if all Christians are filled with the Holy Spirit, why am I not experiencing the Spirit in the way that you just described it, Char? Why does my life or lifestyle seem inconsistent with the Holy Spirit's work in the life of Jesus? Why don't I desire the things of God if I do have the Spirit of God? Or, why is my life defined more by sin than by righteousness? Now, I don't like to base things on feelings alone. I don't think that's helpful. I don't think that's really accurate as a Christian. But feelings are important. Experience is is important. Scripture makes that very clear. But I think these are very good questions to ask ourselves. And these, I think, are some of the possibilities. Remember, Paul the Apostle says in Ephesians 4.30, not to grieve the Holy Spirit. Remember that passage? Another passage speaks of this ability to quench the Spirit of God, which sounds counterintuitive. How could I quench this God's life-giving Spirit? And then one more of resisting the Spirit. To grieving, quenching, resisting. Brian Chapel, he says this: "The same spirit who convicts my heart of sin, generates in me love for God, gives me new birth, provides my apprehension of the beauty of grace in the world, and seals my redemption until the coming of the Lord. This same spirit who loves me so intimately and perfectly, I can cause to grieve. I have the power, you have the power to stop the flow of the work of God, of God's Spirit, of his voice, to silence that in your life. Now, does that mean that God can't override and break through? Oh, come on, absolutely not. But that we can muffle, as it were, the voice of the Spirit. We can quench and stop the work that he is doing and wanting to do. Now, notice scripture does not say we lose the spirit or that the spirit leaves us. It's not bringing in Psalm 51 or you know, Psalm 32. That was an anointing in the Old Testament. We're talking about salvation here. We're talking about the presence of the spirit in the life of the believer. None of that. But he can be quenched, grieved, and resisted. And so this should give us pause Because maybe we don't feel or aren't experiencing the Spirit's presence and power in our lives because he has been resisted for so long. He has been ignored for so long. He has even been grieved and suppressed. He's speaking a word of conviction, but every time we just go on in our own way. He's, he's saying to us, come away with me, make time for me, be with me. And we're like, I'm busy, I'm busy, I can't, I can't, I can't, I've got this, and I've got that, I've got this. Resisted and ignored, grieved and suppressed. It could simply be spiritual stagnation because of apathy to the things of God. I've just been doing this so long, it's just kind of worn off its power, Right? I'm just kind of in this rut. I just do the same things again and again and again. I've just kind of grown apathetic to the things of God, to the Spirit of God. It could also be a failure to operate according to the Spirit's power and rely on our own strength and ability to cope with and navigate life on our own. All of these can grieve and suppress the Spirit and His work in our lives. You know, sometimes we think only about the big sins that could possibly quench or stop the Holy Spirit, could grieve him. But remember, in Ephesians 4.30, when Paul's talking about grieving the Spirit, he isn't talking about sex. He isn't talking about, you know, murder. He isn't talking about, you know, the big sins that we often think about. Paul speaks of grieving the uh, the Spirit in in relational terms by sowing discord and disunity among God's people through unforgiveness, unthankfulness, and covetousness, bitterness, backbiting, and slander, harsh and critical speech that discourage and tears people down. You see, I mean, really, we grieve the Holy Spirit any time we don't think, speak, and act in love towards others. And if we give into that again and again and again, Rather than being channels of God's love and channels of God's grace, we're going to stop up the flow of the Spirit in our lives. But it's not just sin, it's also compromise and counterfeit. Well, what do you mean by that? Well, if you're not operating in in and depending on the Spirit, you don't just go into neutral. That's not how it works. Instead, in some way, shape, or form, you're compromising The power of the Spirit. You're counterfeiting the work and power of God's Spirit. So, for some of us, it's that we rely on substance. So, I would ask the question what is filling and fueling you? Where do you go to be satisfied? Where do you go for comfort? Where do you go to be strengthened and renewed? So many of us, and I, I'm not even saying this like in a alcoholic type of way or, you know, someone who is abusing food or any of these things, but some of us, we go to food, we go to alcohol, we go to our meds, we go to, you know, codependency. All of these things, even we channel our anger as a way to comfort ourselves, It's a way, in a sense, to be in control and to be powerful rather than Allowing the power of the Spirit, the work of the Spirit, the person of the Spirit being the filling and fueling of our lives. See, all of these things, we all do it, none of these things can heal you, though. See, all of these that I just mentioned, these suppress, you know, like alcohol is called a suppressant because they suppress the real issue. They cannot heal them. The Spirit of God wants to bring real healing to our lives by working joy, by working peace, the shalom of God, and the righteousness of God. That's right doing, right relationships with one another, right relationship with God. He wants to work that into the very core of our being. So I would ask again, in which ways might you be compromising, counterfeiting the work of the Spirit? Filling and fueling on something else rather than God's spirit. And lastly, what is driving and inspiring you? What narrative are you allowing to shape your life? Or who or what has the greatest influence in your life? See, when we look more like the culture around us, those that do not know God, pursuing the things of a society that doesn't know God or care about the things of God. When we prize friendship with the world, and I'm talking about compromise, not talking about being kind to people that don't know God. But when we prize friendship with the world over friendship with Jesus, it grieves the Spirit of God. Remember in James, he says, Specifically in this context, friendship with the world is enmity with God. And then James brings up this wild thing. He says, Do you not know that the spirit of God that is in you is jealous for you? You've been blood bought and purchased to be filled and fueled on God's Spirit, to be an in intimate relationship with this sp- living God. And yet we go after these grand narratives of the world. We settle for the dreams of the world rather than the high call of God in Christ to be formed into the image of Jesus to one day, to engage in the mission of God and to one day rule and reign over the new creation. And when we do this, his spirit is jealous for us and this grieves the Spirit of God. Now, these all quench the Spirit. They stop His flow, suppress and silence His voice in our lives. So then the question is, well, what do we do then? What do we do? Well, remember that passage where God says, return to me. And then what does He say? Return to me, Israel. And what will He do? And I will return to you. There's another passage that says, break up the hardened ground. Break up that barrier that is keeping the spirit from flowing. So what is that? That's all intentional work that we must do to return to the Lord, to break up this hardened ground. And so when I think about those, I think about intentionally seeking the Lord, not just sitting in my apathy, not just sitting in my complacency. Now I'll give everybody in this room a pass, myself included, because I think the way that the world is operating right now, with the boom in technology over the last 10 years, with the way that now you know our TVs are connected to our computers and the internet and all this, we are living in the age of distraction. What I mean by that is everything is designed to not get you to think of your life at a deep level. We had a woman do some spiritual direction for our staff this last week, just kind of guide us into ways that we might just be missing what the Lord wants to do. And she was talking about how Jesus in the Gospels, specifically in Matthew, he talks about how foolish the people who do not give care over their souls, over who they really are underneath the clothes, underneath the mask, underneath all of the noise, who they really are at the core of their being. How foolish that these people could actually gain the whole world and yet never pay attention to the state of their soul. Now you and I, and I don't mean this in like a Gnostic way, but because of the Spirit of God, we have been awakened. We've been awakened by the Spirit of God that there is a new creation, that there is a grand story that we are a part of, that our souls have been blood-bought, purchased by the one true and living God. And we are people that are to care for our souls, to tend to our souls, to cultivate the life of God in and at work through us. That takes intentionality. That takes unplugging, getting away, carving out time to open ourselves up to God and say, like David said, search me, O Lord, and know me. Try me and know my anxieties. Know, Lord, what I am afraid of. Know where I hurt. And help me see all the ways that I am going to these broken cisterns that cannot satisfy me, cannot heal my wounds. Instead of going to you and lead me back To you, Lord, bring me back. Here I am, I'm returning to you, Lord, will you return to me? Will you break up the rubble that's prohibiting your spirit from flowing in and through my life? That has stopped the power and maybe even awareness of the presence of the spirit in my life. And so church, I exhort you, I encourage you, this week, Even today, if you can, make time, intentional time, to get alone with the Lord and to open yourself up to God and be real. He knows it all anyway. There's nothing you can hide. Read Psalm 139 as a way to kind of open yourself up to the Lord and allow Him to begin to do a deeper work, a work in your soul. Ask Him to make... The presence and power of his spirit alive and and, and well and and obvious once again in your life. And I believe that he will do it. Remember Jesus' words to the church in Revelation. Remember where you have fallen. Remember how it was. Remember what we had, Jesus is saying. And turn and do the original works. Get back to intentional spiritual rhythms to reconnect with God and open yourself up to the Lord and see the good ways that he'll lead you into. See and experience the healing power that he wants to work on that thing that you've been nursing. Now, we have an incredible opportunity this morning that just so aligns with what I'm saying here. Because every first Sunday of the month we do communion together and so to me when I think about communion you guys heard me maybe about a month ago talk about this but to me the table of the Lord is a recalibrating event it's like a come to Jesus altar call that the church is supposed to do every week and I know that there's not a table up here this morning but I would like you to picture the band's going to come out they're going to lead us in a song we're going to do what we often do which is take the bread and cup together But I'd like you to just imagine for a moment. If it's better for you to close your eyes, that helps you. But imagine this. Here at the front of this room is a table. There are an innumerable amount of seats. There's room for everyone. And seated at the center of this table is the Lord Jesus himself. And there is a feast to be had. And it is a feast of broken bread and wine. And it will satisfy you to the deepest core of your being. This feast will fill you and it will fuel you. But this feast will also be a balm to your wounds. It will heal you so that you might be an agent of forgiveness. That's what this table is about this table is about coming and sitting and having a meal with Jesus, our King, with Jesus, the shepherd of our souls. It's like you and your best friend or maybe your spouse just getting alone into your private little corner, at your favorite restaurant, and you get just to talk about what's going on in your lives and what you know, what's going on in the core of your being and what your passions are and what your fears are. You get to just lay it all out. That is what this table is about. It's laying it all out on the table, purging ourselves of all of these things and being filled with Jesus, being filled with his life-giving life. And so I just invite you as the band comes out, as we sing this song together, that you would just take even this moment to open yourself up to God to the searching power of the Holy Spirit, to recalibrate your life so that in and through you, you might be an image of Jesus. That people around you would know and when you walk alongside them that Jesus himself has walked alongside of them because his power and presence is so potent and at work in your life. So Holy Spirit, do that now, we pray. Search us, know us, purge out all the ways, Lord, that we try to satisfy ourselves apart from you and fill us with your life-giving power. Heal us of our different infirmities. Lord, sin that we have done, sin done against us, Lord. We want to lay it all out. Lord, there's nothing that you can't take. There's nothing that you cannot heal. There's no burden of ours that you refuse to carry. And so, Lord, would we lay it all out now